Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and I hope you're ready because what a conversation I have for you. Eleanor Mills was the editorial director of the Sunday Times and editor of its magazine. She was the youngest features editor at The Telegraph at the age of 26. She was chair of Women in Journalism. She's interviewed pretty much everyone from Bob Hoskins to Gorbachev. And she had one of the biggest jobs in newspapers alongside juggling life with her lovely husband and two daughters. But after more than 20 years at The Times in March 2020, just as the world changed for all of us, Eleanor was made redundant. She found herself lost, sitting on a bench with her friend, not knowing what to do next. She went on to start Noon, which she describes as a platform helping women with the transition of midlife, whether it's divorce, children leaving home, redundancy, marriage troubles, or yes, women just wanting a next chapter. Eleanor believes at 50, women are only halfway through. We are going into our prime and this should be celebrated. Yes, indeed. Eleanor is so open and honest, I do apologise as I say wow a lot, but really there is a lot to say wow about. She inspired me so much and I'm really hoping she's about to inspire you too. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Eleanor Mills. Eleanor Mills, welcome to the next chapter. I am beyond words. I'm just so delighted to have you with me. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, because Eleanor, this is like, I couldn't think of a better guest for the next chapter because there's just like lots of next chapters. So I'm just going to just going to get on with it. So we start as ever, as we always do with the prologue. So this is all where you grew up. So you grew up in Camden in North London. Um, what, how would you describe your childhood, would you say? Oh, um, well, I have a few, I have a few kind of quick phrases. So I was definitely the product of what we call the divorce Olympics. So <laughs> my parents split up when I was five. Uh, they both then remarried, uh, had more children. My mum married someone who already had three kids by his first marriage. So we ended up being a kind of sprawling extended family of 10. Um, and I've got siblings who were like 10 and 12 and 14 years younger than me as well. Wow. And it was pretty, I'd say it was probably pretty chaotic and bohemian. Certainly my um, teenage years were pretty wild. Okay. And that was in Camden as well. So I can imagine it. There was a lot going on there. And that's... Yeah, Camden Town. And then actually my parents moved to Soho when I was 16. Wow. Um, so it kind of, yeah. I had a very urban childhood. I mean, if I look back now, kind of going clubbing on the night bus when I was 14 with my child rate photo card and kind of um, all, you know, my parents would go to the country every weekend. So we'd be left in London with what was known as a free house wow. from when we were very young. And so when I think back now to some of the stuff that we we did and the yeah. general kind of um kind of madness of it um i'm pretty i feel pretty lucky to still be in one piece but somehow i think i was kind of quite wise beyond my years and i think there's a certain way in which you're given a lot of freedom when you're young that you actually become quite responsible somebody has to be the grown-up so yeah. i was i was wild but i was also had an eye on how the hell we were going to get home and the house not getting too trashed and not being the most you know wasted person in the place kind of re res responsible person and did you live between both your mum and dad did, did you yeah is that how you did yeah it? yeah we, sh 
shuttled I shuttled between parents from when I was five and that was not fun no um, no but they lived near each other so wherever they lived, they lived yeah my dad was in Kentish Town which is very near where I live now and my mum was in um kind of Primrose Hill Regent's Park and then moved to Highbury so I've always lived within the same kind of radius streets of North London yeah. and I love that now when I walk out of my door I can't go anywhere without bumping into people I know in fact I find the whole of London like a bit of a village I've lived here for so long and I know so many people here that I can be walking down Oxford Street and I bump into someone I know or yeah. um on the Heath where I walk and swim most days I always bump into friends my husband and I joke about who we're going to meet today so I love the kind of serendipity and the kind of villageness of certain bits of London yeah and I think people listening to this might be surprised to hear that about London but also there where you say that you're living in two different houses as a child but look at that now you've got this whole community and like this extended you know somewhere where you truly belong and I think that's that's quite rare to find that sort of I, I think sort of as we get older so that's amazing and so what kind of pupil were you at school Eleanor while you're on the night bus coming back from Soho <laughs> what how did you get on at school well I think I've always been quite um I've always been a kind of bit of a mixture of things um you know when I was at the so so when I was young I was I, I was at St Paul's um which was very academic school and then I went to Westminster to do my A-levels and I went to Oxford um to study English literature so in my family academic achievement was incredibly um, seen as incredibly important it was the the thing that you weren't allowed not to do mm. as it were. so it didn't matter kind of what else was going on as long as we we were all performing or overachieving at school then our parents kind of stayed off our back so I was I was definitely quite self-motivated I worked hard I did my homework but I was also always quite work hard play hard I'd work mm. get my work done and then I'd go out and Mm. Hit, the, hit the town that's such a lot of discipline though as a teenager to have that kind of freedom at the weekend but then also to be getting marks like you were getting that's in you know i would say that's really really disciplined i think it was I, I don't think there was any choice ellie i mm. think it was um it was that was a survival mm. you know just get your head down and you, obviously you so you, i mean incredible you went to oxford to read english did you, you obviously always loved english did you because i think you, your dad was a solicitor was he was there any journalism in the family yeah, there was. My mum was a gent. My mum, I come from a family of psychologists and psychotherapists, really. Wow. Um, on my Well, my mum and my stepfather um, were both psychoanalysts, and so is my sister. So our family religion at home was Freud. Right. So I grew up very much in one of those North London houses with killing rugs and little Buddhas. And my stepfather was the head of the adult department at the Tavistock. And Freud was very much the kind of family religion. So if you were late home from school, which I was a lot, um, you weren't allowed just to have missed the bus. It was your kind of, you know, adolescent rage against your parent or your <laughs> electro complex or and we got our dreams analyzed a lot and that kind of thing so it was definitely very much a psychological lens through which I was taught to to kind of see the world yeah how amazing god I love the sound of that I really do so you went to you went to Oxford um did, how did you find Oxford did you have a, a how did you find your time there Oh, I had a ball. Um, I went up in 1989 and of course um, that was the beginning of the kind of, you know, summer of love kind of <laughs> jumping up and down on hay bales and taking ecstasy and it was very weird. Oxford really changed while I was there. So the first year that we were there, it was quite old fashioned. It was kind of drinks parties and I've never worn so much black tie and kind of, you know, but quite kind of formal things. And then suddenly rave culture hit and all those all those parties at the Piers Caverston, the Assassins, which had been quite kind of stiff, drunk, drunken affairs, became 
amazing outdoor raves kind of on people's beautiful kind of land and these amazing estates and we would all just like jump up and down to the music and still be going in the morning and I just remember a succession of incredible kind of you know sunrises and being there with the people that you really love and it was an incredible hedonistic time I mean I think I probably should have done more work I did okay I always kind of managed to but but my daughter is actually up at Oxford now and the way that she takes her studies incredibly seriously and the the kind of scholarly way she approaches it and the interest that her tutors have in her mind and developing her I don't think it was like that for me. I think it was. I wanted to get my essay done so I could go to the next party. Yeah, but obviously, Eleanor, as well, with your your previous experience of the Soho night bus, and you know, you were well trained for this. You, can I? Because I, you, you got, I know you've got two daughters. Did they? Did have? Were they at fourteen getting on the night bus from Soho? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I thought you might say that. I thought you might. Say no, that. I mean, I think it's only when you begin to parent your own children. I was. Yeah. I mean, when I really, when I look back at what I've been doing at like 13 14 15 16 and then I compared it to my children I was absolutely horrified <laughs> so I was much more one of those mothers who was like I know exactly what you're going to yeah. do what you're going to try and do where you're going to go and you know what you and you don't palm me off saying you're staying at your mates I don't believe you you know so you know I've always been um, I've always had a policy of quite radical honesty with my own teenagers yeah. both about what I got up to and why that wasn't necessarily a good idea and also quite gimlet eyed about what they were doing yeah I think we've got a whole different podcast about that because I know that people listening to this who are going into the teen years as you I think you have a lot of expertise so we have to perhaps discuss that another time so so going back to you so so your first chapter now I read this Ellen I just I had to smile because I was not expecting this I understand that your first job was actually at Tank World magazine the world's premier bulk liquid transportation publication Um, (laughs) I mean exactly where I would imagine you'd have started your career (laughs) <laughs> well, it was actually quite good training ground. I worked for Tank World magazine and Container Management. They were quite a, they were a very small publishing house and they had offices on the M4 and they were run by a whole load of Cambridge graduates and they only hired um Oxbridge ex-English people, I think. And um, my editor at Tank World, there were only two of us on the magazine. It was a classic, like, um, have I got news for you, trade magazine. Um, And my editor was Andy Burnham, who now, of course, is mayor of Manchester. So me and Andy ran Tank World. We had quite a laugh, I must say. I didn't do it for very long. And then I um, got a job on the Observer, fixing all the interviews and things for and being a researcher on the magazine. But I did get Andy out of tanks and into politics. I got him a job with my um, stepmother, Tessa Jow. Wow. So that was a bit of a claim to fame there, Ellen, I would say. Well, I, I got Andy into politics. Yeah. So, yes, I think we're still friends. Yeah, that's that's just wow. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. So, again, um, so so you what did you actually write about, though, at Tank World? Oh, I think my I think um, my best ever piece is I had to write four thousand words about gratings, which are the kind of ladders that go up the side of rail tanks. Um, and then I then um, uncovered. I always had a bit of a nose for a story, so I uncovered a huge scandal in the tank world thing, that, in a tank container world that some German company had built some other had bought some other company, and I wrote it up. And the the uh, head publisher went completely bonkers, going, "This is meant to be top secret. How do you even know about it?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I put 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 you know two and two together." Yeah. So. Um, I was kind of definitely dissuaded from breaking too many tank scoops. Yeah, I bet you were, but the seeds were being sown there, Eleanor. They were, <laughs> they really were. So, to that, yeah, like you say, you went on to the Observer. Now, I understand you were the only female trainee in the newsroom. 
Yeah, I think that was probably true at the time. I worked on the magazine for an amazing editor called Rebecca Nicholson. Mm. Um, she was kind of recreating a gravure magazine. Um, and I did kind of a year there doing all the kind of back section things and doing the research. And But I just desperately wanted to write. I had loads and loads of ideas. And I think I was a real pain. I spent my whole time hassling desk heads going, I've got this idea. Please let me write this. Please let me write that. And I, I got had quite a good strike rate. I got a couple of covers of the um, Observer magazine. And I um, wrote quite a lot of stuff for the features pages. And so eventually they put me on the news desk as a trainee. And I was, yeah, there were no other young women in the newsroom. And that was real, like, old Fleet Street culture. That was the entire place pretty well emptied out at 12.30 every day down to the pub. Mm. And they would all get absolutely, you know, hammered mm. and then return to their desks and write. I was a, I'm a terrible drinker and I can't really drink at all. It's not my, it's never been my thing. Mm. So I was, um, I was a pretty useless um, kind of rookie down the down the pub. I never really liked drinking, and I remember being bawled out by a senior editor once, going, you, "You know, you're better than this. Don't turn into a kind of drunken observer hack." So I, I didn't. You didn't. But, and how did you find that? I mean, if you, if your stepmom obviously was Tessa Jowell, and so you're used to strong women. Your mum worked. So yeah, my mum was a university lecturer in psychology and worked for the British Board of Film Classification as a censor, wow. um, and did a lot of pioneering research down in South London into um, maternal depression. Okay. So she always worked. Um, Tessa always worked and my um, aunt um, was Barbara Mills who was the first female director of public prosecutions oh she was a, Q, a really early QC mm. and she also had four children so all the women in my immediate constellation had kids big jobs mm. I grew up thinking it was very normal to be a woman who who um, wielded considerable power wow. that's quite unusual though I think isn't it because a lot of the time like with my you know I think I mean, my mum didn't didn't work and her sisters didn't at all. So it was all, I was always like one of the first. And I know some of my friends, they also were one of the first. So, that, mm. I mean, that was amazing for you to have those role models. And do you think that helped when you were in that real male dominated environment? You could have felt intimidated, but I suppose you didn't, especially that helped with those kind of women around you. I think I think I didn't have the sense which I've seen in a lot of other women of feeling kind of you know very conflicted I think if you you're brought up by a woman who's basically devoted her whole life to being at home and kind of living very much quite vicariously through their children I mm. see quite a lot of my contemporaries who did have that kind of mother then you feel very guilty if you're not emulating that for your own children whereas for me um I knew my mum had always worked my stepmother had worked my aunt had worked the kids were fine um I love my mum um, um, and actually, as a fan, as a kid, <laughs> family of kids, she'd laugh. At, I think of me saying this. We used to breathe a sigh of relief when Mum went out to work because she was such a whirlwind of energy and intelligence that she needed to go and kind of um, focus that on another bit of the world. If mm. it had all just been on us, it would have been unbearable. So we used to often kind of breathe a sigh of relief, and we had lovely nannies who were really good fun and looked after us. You know, we were, we were, so I think it was. Um, I think it was fine. And so I don't think I ever had that sense that I was doing something terrible to my children by not being there all the time. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? That is, I hadn't really sort of looked at it like that before. But that, and that um, also it goes to show, and this is part of what we do here on the next chapter, because, because it's so important. If you are happy in yourself, you are a much better person to everyone else around you, isn't it? And it's just like, if you're unhappy, it, 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 that frustration comes out on your children and your, you know, so it just, 
you know yeah I think it's very corrosive if you're not doing something that you want to do and I also think I've got two girls I think it's been really good for them you know all their life I've been the main breadwinner in my family Mm -hmm. um my husband's been amazing but you know if if the kids um if the kids were sick or something it was him who took the day off because Mm -hmm. it was my salary we needed to pay the mortgage Mm -hmm. and actually I don't think enough women talk talk about why that's a good thing I mean if I look at so many of my female contemporaries their careers have been completely knocked off track by having much more successful husbands. Mm. Um, Because I think if you marry one of those men who's becoming a top banker or a top lawyer, and, you know, lots of my Oxford peers did that, Mm. um, then their career is always going to trump yours. And for me, taking on the burden of being the breadwinner also came with a huge freedom and a focus on my job, my career, my life being important. Mm. And I think for so many women that, 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 and I see that, we see that so much at Noon. We'll talk about Noon mm. in a minute, but Noon is this new um, platform that I've set up to help women into the new chapters at Midlife and to mm. kind of change the narrative about what older life for women looks like. And th- a lot of those women are going, well, I started off with so many dreams and so many ambitions, which have been knocked off course by looking after my family. My husband kind of was earning, you know, so much money as a lawyer or a banker or whatever that he his needs always trump mine. Mm. That me saying, well, actually, I care about my job. And they, and they would say, yeah, but he was always on a plane. Somebody needed to be the domestic CEO. And mm. I've seen so many intelligent women kind of slightly fall into that trap. And I don't think we talk enough to our daughters about how actually if you really want to have a big career, mm. then you, you have to kind of prioritise for that, that for yourself. And maybe that also is a, is becomes part of the matrix or the calculation in who you end up marrying or kind of, you know, falling in love with. I mean, I think for me, it was much, much better to have had a kind of partner who is, has been incredibly supportive and proud of what I was doing mm. um, and has really pissed, picked up the domestic slack mm. um, than if I'd been with somebody else who was very, very career driven. I think that would have been really difficult. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you always think as well, when you're sort of young and falling in love, you sort of want to meet like-minded people, which you obviously are with your husband, but it's not necessarily in terms of career is it it's more to do with the values and that that side of thing of it and so has your husband worked at all Eleanor's throughout yeah yeah he's he's always worked he worked for Google for a while as a um on Google Maps and things like that and he's a really amazing kind of um online kind of content strategist and Mm. editor but a lot of what he's done has worked from has been working from home and he's but he's never really defined himself by by his work when I met him we met traveling in India um he was a juggler and he juggled ah. fire for me when we first met in uh, ah. in Karnataka. Wow. I was I've gone up to see a friend, and he'd actually Derek, who's my husband, had been travelling with this other friend in northern India, wow. and we were in this place called uh, Hampi. And my friend Jim said, "Oh, there's this guy Derek who we were travelling with in northern India. He's going to come and stay in the guest house." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Sitting on the roof reading a book, and he popped up and said. <gasps> I'm Derek. We've basically been together for 25 wow. years ever since. He started juggling and then look, you've juggled. It's amazing. Yeah, we, <laughs> it's amazing. We've, juggled, we've juggled together. But yeah, 20, 25, you know, 25 years. So I, I think it's very, very important to choose as your life partner, the person who works for you mm. um, and to really slightly ignore what everyone else around you mm. thinks. I can remember coming back. I think at the time I was 
features editor of the Telegraph. I was about 26, 27, and I came back from India saying, I've fallen in love with a juggler. And all my friends and my family just kind of thinking, yeah, right, well, that's <laughs> that's obviously a goer. But actually, 25 years on, go. we're still going strong. We've got two uh, lovely girls, and, you know, it works for us. So yeah. I think it's very important just to, to it's real, that real know thyself, you know, yeah. know what you need. Don't, don't get together with someone who everyone else thinks tips the right boxes. Yeah. Tick the boxes that, that you need and who make you feel like a better version of yourself mm-hmm. i think we think derek's my my kind of moral compass yeah how lovely what a lovely story to hear on a monday morning that's just so <laughs> lovely right so going back going back to to you though so so you did like you say so you became now is this you became the youngest ever features editor at the age of i was the youngest ever um features editor at the telegraph yeah when i was about 26 so wow. i was at the observer for a while and i wrote some stuff and i was on the um news desk there and then the Telegraph came calling to be uh, to make me deputy features editor when I was about 25, 26. And I went there and then within a year I became um, the head of features there. Mm. Um, I think I was the youngest one. And then I was there for a couple of years or so. And then um, I got headhunted by the Sunday Times and went to the Sunday Times and had basically been there for 23 years so mm. until... I left two years ago, just before the pandemic. Okay, which we'll come on to. But just going back to that, did you did you enjoy features? Did you want to do features more than news? Yeah, I've always thought, well, I never did just straight features. I've always done kind of news features, which I think is the most interesting bit. So that's the collision between what's going on and kind of what it means. Mm. So, you know, after 9-11, I was the news review editor at the Sunday Times. And so it was down to me to commission what was the big read, the kind of 3,000 words that everyone was going to read on that Sunday. And I remember commissioning Andrew Sullivan to write a huge piece called Why Do They Hate America? Which was trying to kind of dig into why the Twin Towers had, had been attacked, which at the time, it did really seem to come you know, for many people kind of out of nowhere. So I've always been interested in the big questions underlying the news. So, you know, if you're looking at kind of Ukraine, you go, okay, well, what's happened this week? But what does this mean in the bigger kind of realignment of the kind of world's tectonic plates? Mm -hmm. I've always been one for kind of asking the big questions and trying to get really good writers who really know to um to answer those questions so it's kind of where news meets comment meets kind of a, um a fe- kind of news analysis i think mm-hmm. that's always been my key strength and i also also like a kind of you know who doesn't love a kind of good jolly feature on you know whatever it is or you notice something going on and mm-hmm. two of them is probably a bit of coincidence once you get a third that's definitely a feature i've done, yeah. done quite a lot of those in my life and i've run you know ran all sorts of people from jeremy clarkson to indian night and you know i was, I was a I was a um, major editor on the Sunday Times for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. And did you, so do you like this, like, because obviously I, I work in television, which is like a mm. two, two minute piece, um, or maybe three at, if we're very lucky. Uh, so do you like the fact of going into that in depth, you, that's obviously you, that finer detail and going sort of beyond the surface as such? Presumably that's the kind of journalism that really interests you. Yeah, I've always thought so. I mean, I was a Sunday newspaper journalist and the and the key about that on the news cycle, a Sunday newspaper is both explaining and trying to get to the heart of what's happened that week, but also then teeing you up with some news and some new stuff for the next week. So you're both, you're doing two things at once. You're, you're kind of finishing off the week that was and explaining it and then going, right, this is, this is what's going to be important in the week that's coming. So I always like that kind of slightly bigger kind of... Um, a kind of bigger platform i mean I've, I've done those more daily features so it's like what does everyone want to read tomorrow you yeah. know that's fine but it's more interesting i think doing it in that kind of weekly cycle i don't think we really get enough of that anymore i've always been interested in 
in in why things matter what what the fact that something's happened tells us about the bigger picture mm. i've always liked being able to kind of peer into the kind of you know the heart of things and try and read the runes for what that means or what what happens next mm. and did you find it hard when you sort of were more of an editor and then stopped writing the features yourself did you find that hard or did you always sort of keep a hand in in writing well I've always done both I think like a bit like when I was a kid that I was a kind of swap but I was also a party animal um <laughs> I was always as a as a as a writer or as an editor I was always a, an I was always a writer as well when I first went to the Sunday Times I went there as deputy editor of news review but I went there to and I wrote the big interview every week for the newspaper so I went and saw kind of all sorts of politicians I did everyone from like Charlton Heston to Gary Lineker to the Dalai Lama to um, McDonough to you know I, I really interviewed Mikhail Gorbachev I you know and you name them I interviewed them kind of back in the day and I would go and do an interview every week but then at the same time I was also coming up with the big ideas and I'd, I'd literally file my edit my, my interview and then I'd start editing all the other copy for the for the news review so I've always done both and I like that I think it makes you a better writer mm. if you have an editor head on as well and I and it's it's really stood me in good in good stead because I still do that now at noon I you know I write stuff and I commission stuff I like I like being able to be a doer and do, being the talent as well as the seat I think yeah. and and even when I was running the Sunday Times magazine I would occasionally you know strap myself into harness and go and do an interview myself I did David I interviewed David Cameron for the magazine I interviewed Theresa May I interviewed um, Dawn French and I my very final um, issue of the of the Sunday Times magazine, which was on International Women's Day in 2020. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd interviewed Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, and gone out to Palo Alto, and that was on the cover of the magazine the week that I uh, was let go. Wow, which we're going to come on to. Which we're going to before we move on, because before we let me just ask you this, and this is I know this is a ridiculous question, and I know many people have asked you this, but I have to ask you it. <laughs> One person that springs to mind now, if I said to you, of all those incredible people, I mean, Dawn French, I can't like, she would be my heroine to sort of interview as well. But it, one person that springs to mind was perhaps the most interesting person that you, you just all still think of today. I think there are two. Mikhail Gorbachev, the most charismatic man I have ever met in my life. Wow. And I've met Bill Clinton and, um, you know, quite a lot of Tony Blair and a lot of people who were, who were charismatic. But Gorbachev had a a kind of en like a crackling energy about him and I remember he was speaking Russian I interviewed him in Claridge's or somewhere like that there were about eight of us in a quite a small room um, and he was speaking in Russian through a through an interpreter but he still had such charisma that if he'd said to me then you know follow me back to Russia I would have done it in a you know in the in a blink I yeah. really would he was amazing um, which I don't think anyone ever really kind of thinks about with him. And then the other person who's, there's a wonderful quote, Maya Angelou quote, that you, you don't, you don't necessarily remember what people say, but you always remember how, how the people make you feel. Yeah. And I remember interviewing the Dalai Lama, having an hour with him and us spending most of it just laughing in this kind of very kind of like, like joyous kind of giggly kind of realm. And I've never forgotten that feeling. And when I've done my own meditation, I've done quite a lot of work on myself since. I really think that that hour that I spent with him, this sense of a kind of a, a lightness of being, a joy, um, was definitely a window into something that I've um, tried to recreate since. Wow, how amazing. Just how how amazing. I'm glad you didn't go off to Russia though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, no. but he, honestly he had that kind of peter you know that pipe piper like quality yeah that there was something about him that yeah. you kind of were like yes you know I, I you know yeah. i get it yeah and there aren't that many people who have that quality and quite a few people who were kind of supposed to have it yeah. when you meet them it's a bit meh but um bill clinton has it he kind of fixes you and you feel like you're the only person in the world yeah. for that two seconds or whatever or 10 seconds that he's on you yeah. um but other people you 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 should be careful about meeting your heroes. I read I met Bob Hoskins once, who I'd always loved, and he was horrid. No, horrid, oh, nasty, kind of grumpy, nasty little man. That was really sad. Oh, that is sad. Anyway, listen, I could talk all day, but we're here to talk about your next chapter. So, so you, so you went to the Sunday Times in 1998. You were so I hope I've got this right. You were editor of the Saturday edition. You're editor of. No, yes, yeah, so I was editor of the Saturday edition of the Times for a while. I went over to the Times from the Sunday Times and completely relaunched them all, all their Saturday package. Right. I created the review section and the weekend section and you I know all that. the things actually which are there now. Yeah, it's really good. Well, I've well I've always enjoyed the Saturday. I mean, mm. the editor. So then you became the editor of Sunday Times. Is that right? In no, no. Then I then I went back to the Sunday Times. I was assistant editor, I think, at the Sunday Times, and I was a columnist. I wrote a column in the News Review and a column in the Home section, and I wrote big features. I was shortlisted for Feature Writer of the Year, I think, when I was in that phase. Yeah. And then I became editorial director of the Sunday Times and editor of the magazine. So that meant that I, I was basically there were about there were there was a quorum of four of us basically who run the paper, and I was part of that with Martin Ivans. Wow, that's huge. And where so Eleanor? Was it? So, so at this stage, did you ha obviously did you have your daughters by this stage? Yeah, I had my daughters young actually when I was thirty-one. When I was editor of News Review, um, I think that was quite good. I had a bit more energy. I remember when I had my second kid, um, just being so exhausted because it was brutal. You know, a bit. You know, you mm. worked in telly. It was brutal hours on a Friday. The um, I'd get in at nine at nine a.m. and the section would go to press at about two in the morning. So every Friday I would do a day which started, you know, I'd leave here at my home at half seven or so in the morning and I wouldn't get back till probably like 3 a.m. the mm. following morning. And I had two tiny children. Mm. Um, that was pretty exhausting. My husband was amazing. He would get them up really early on Saturday morning and take them to the park so that I could sleep in. Because mm. you can imagine if you haven't got in till 3 a.m., yeah, you, you can't, can't sleep, sleep immediately because yeah. you're so keyed up. Yeah. And, and if I'd had to get up at six o'clock with the oh. girls... I would have been a complete zombie. So he would let me sleep until kind of eleven, and then we'd have all have a nice day together. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then it all starts again on the Monday, would it? Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and did you? I mean, aside from that, did you enjoy that? I mean, there must have been so much responsibility in that job. But did you? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I think that. I think also, I was very young. I was like thirty-one or something. So I think to be a woman um with your hands on those kind of levers and also remember you know back in the 90s early 2000s newspapers really were how people got their news i mean it's really hard to think about that now because mm. everything's so um it's so different but back then if it was in the kind of sunday times or it was the sunday times news review front you could everybody would have read that you know and you could hear the phrases that you'd use or you'd written or the headline that you'd put on it reflected back to you in say in the today program or it was it was like you were setting the kind of cultural agenda for the week mm. and the phrases that you use or the, the lens that we put on it became how everybody else kind of interpreted the world or or, or events so that was tremendously heady and exciting to feel that you were so um you were so kind of creating 
the agenda and the the kind of lens through which people understood the world mm -hmm. and so i think that there was a huge excitement in being a young woman and being allowed to do that you know yeah. to be really in the kind of belly of the beast making those decisions arguing it out with the editor i mean he was pretty scary um <laughs> but but kind of being able to be I think I was so excited um, about actually being allowed kind of in the room that felt like such an amazing kind of treat mm. that all the kind of exhaustion and the um, pressure and the, you know, the machismo and all of that kind of stuff was was kind of, you know, endurable because it was just so exciting to be there. I can't imagine you being scared of anyone, Eleanor. Well, uh, there was some pretty big. I'm not. I don't scare easily, or even if I am scared, I wouldn't. Let, I wouldn't necessarily let on. No. My mum always used to say to me, "The thing about bullies is never let them see the whites of your eyes, however scary they are. Yeah. Never show that they've scared you, because then you're stuffed." Yeah. Exactly. So you have to. <laughs> but juggling. there were certainly some people who it was a bit like going into a cage with a tiger. You know, you didn't let your guard down yeah. ever. Yeah. Wow. What, a, what an experience. And because you, you described it as a, the big job which gave you like a cloak of power, which I thought was a great way of describing it. But then March 2020, like you say, just at the same time when the whole world was just changing, you know, just so drastically for everyone, then something drastic also on top of everything else happened for you. Yeah, well, I was, um, you know, I was plugging away at the Sunday Times. I was the editorial director. I'd won. I was the only editor of the magazine ever to win a prize for editor of the year in the fifty years of the Sunday Times magazine's existence. Wow, and you know, it was doing really well under me. So I, I didn't. They brought in a new editor, um, and I kind of assumed I'd be all right because my track record was pretty good. And she decided she was bringing in her own team, and uh, I was made redundant. Mm. I can't be too, I can't really go into any of that. No, um, no, no, absolutely. For legal reasons, but um, basically, I was out after twenty-three years, right. and that was a huge, yeah. it's a huge shock. You know, if you've done, I mean, if you've been doing anything for twenty-three years, I mean, mm. um, I've now I left and I set up this new platform, which is all about helping people with those kind of massive transitions, whether you're moving out of a marriage or because somebody's died or because somebody's ill or your children go off to university or those kind of things. So, so dealing with those huge transitions when you've been doing something for several decades and then suddenly the world is not as you thought it was, that's a huge, huge shift. Mm. And I think for me, because I put so much, I love, you know, I loved the Sunday Times. I, I really, I really believed in it. And mm. um, I'd worn this huge kind of cloak of power um, from you know being part of it for so long mm. it was such a huge part of my identity and then it had just been taken off and so I wrote I think I wrote a piece at the time um about how it was a bit like having a kind of game of thrones power cloak this kind of huge black thing with kind of fur and lots of gold and you know <laughs> you were kind of very much in wearing it you're you're kind of you are the wearer of the cloak and actually when you take it off you realize that the cloak is really heavy quite stops you moving freely and also that when you take it off, you're a bit lost, you know, kind of who are you without it? So mm. I think I spent quite a lot of the beginning bit of lockdown just trying to kind of work through that. I felt very, um, felt very raw, felt very sad. Um, it felt like quite a big humiliation. There was a huge part of me that just couldn't understand it. I've always been really competitive and I'd always, you know, I thought if you were good at what you did, then... You, that that was a protection mm. so that was a that was a bit of a wake-up call mm. um and but I've also I also really found out that I had amazing friends amazing family this huge network of people who'd 
you know worked for me or I'd helped by running their articles or whatever over the years and I just felt that there was this huge kind of um like a net under me of all these people who were kind of there to to kind of help me actually in my hour of need and I set up um I I, I remember googling redundancy um in that kind of beginning bit of the pandemic and the only thing that I could find was the HMRC website which was pretty damn depressing and what I wanted was what I thought of as kind of white kind of pebbles out of the wood like Hansel and Gretel kind of mm. how do you get away from the wicked witch how how do you mm. what what are the what's the path out of the dark wood something that would give me some inspiration and some tools or just a, a map for what I might do from this point and I just couldn't find anything like that online at all I looked all over in my stuff in America and all sorts of things you know maybe 50 things to do when you've been re being made redundant it wasn't really what I wanted mm. so I um so I, I conceived at that time of of noon which is this platform that i've set up which helps women with transition in midlife it mm. does exactly that it's and i called it noon because in the hundred year life 50 is only halfway through and i had this strong sense of, that i was going to start again and that there were a hell of a lot of other women who were also in that position and you know needed to start again for all sorts of reasons divorce bereavement redundancy um uh, kids kind of teenage kids in a bad way and had so many friends who'd got children with um, mental health problems particularly in the pandemic mm. um, and just that sense that all the, the best laid plans by the time you hit midlife had kind of crumbled away and that lots of people needed a reboot or a restart and that there was nothing really out there showing what that might look like so I commissioned a whole load of stories around women who'd made this transition uh, which we call transformation stories which I hope would be inspirational to other people and the point about them was that they were very granular you know exactly kind of how did it feel what did you do not oh I was a merchant banker and now I'm sitting on the Hebrides with my sheep which I always mm. thought was completely hopeless <laughs> but actually what did that what did that transition look like feel like what was it like and I wrote a lot about how it had been for me as well and it was the most helpful thing that anybody said to me during that transition I really want to share this here since your podcast is called Next Chapters was that change is difficult I remember being at a Qigong class down in Camden at Tri Yoga and getting to the end and feeling really upset and um, sitting there and him going yeah, but, you know going around the class saying how was that for everyone and me just like not being able to speak because I was crying so much and um the really lovely guy just coming over and going and going and i was like going, oh, well, I've made a bit of a change at the moment and him just passing me on the shoulder and going look don't worry change is difficult you're allowed to find it hard mm. everybody finds change hard mm. and for me that being given permission to being told it was okay for it to be hard and it was going to be sad and hard but i would come out on the other side was actually the best thing that anyone said so many people said oh you'll be fine you know you'll bounce back or you know it'll be the making of you and all those kind of things which are actually which are meant kindly but at the time just felt like more pressure I just felt really down in the down in the dumps and actually being told that it was all right to feel really rubbish was was re was really really helpful mm. because I and we talk um about what you do do at noon because it is amazing but I I read that you were saying that you met a friend and you were sitting on a bench I think you were drinking pims out of a, a tin which was oh yeah that, that was yeah that was a great. really low moment I, no, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a low, low moment to me but anyway the pims I like that on the bench with a friend but no I know that you were I'm joking you know you, you were very low so and I mean obviously sort of anyone listening to this I mean you god you've had sort of such 
experience and such you know st- stop as such sort of from where where you've come from but when you were sitting on that bench with your friend I know you did feel really really low and you mm. and, and I can imagine that hang on you the the practicalities as well you know you are the main breadwinner you've got mortgages to pay I'm guessing or you know just the real it's all very well we sort of all talk about these things but actually the reality is we have to pay our bills we've got you know there there are certain things like how did you so from that moment where and I know your friend was just really supportive to you how do you go from that where you feel god you know how did you go from that to setting up noon you know to, to get into the mindset that hang on because and to make this work for you um, well, I was really lucky because I had a, a kind of actually a woman I didn't really know very well, but who we'd kind of become friends. She was more senior than me. And when I thought that I was in trouble at the Sunday Times, I rang her and said, you know, what do I do? And she said, well, get yourself a good lawyer. And then she said to me, well, what would you like to do if you, you know, if, if you weren't doing this? And I had I'd had this really strong sense, even while I was at the Sunday Times, of um, there being a huge constituency of older women who were not being served by the mainstream media. Um, I was chair of women in journalism for a long time and I used to campaign a lot about what I called the male lens, which was how the media portrays women. So we're always seen through a male point of view. So the best example I can give of this is say, um, when Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon were both uh, leaders of the UK and they were discussing Brexit and the Daily Mail the next day said, forget about Brexit, it's all about Lexit. Who's got the sexier legs, Nicola Sturgeon or Theresa May? And that for me was a classic example of the male lens because it was basically saying, doesn't matter how powerful you are, what your politics are, even if you're the lead, both leaders of countries, basically you're going to be judged on the sexiness of your legs and that for me was a real like kind of you know like a moment of real clarity and actually that was an egregious moment but if you look at the, a lot of the coverage it's very much through that lens even if it, that's not so explicit so a lot of the women that you see in newspapers are um, arm candy or victims basically and so I became on a real campaign about where are the women with agency where are the women that we're showing who are doing things in their own right who are the kind of role models we'd want to show our daughters and I became obsessed by running those kinds of stories in the Sunday Times magazine when I was editor and would go on and on in a news conference if they there were too many stories on a news list say which didn't show any women with agency so I and I was also aware because I was getting older myself I, I turned 50 actually as I left the Sunday Times um, that there were less and less stories about um, older women so I ran a very successful story in the Sunday Times magazine which was called the Forgotten Army which was all about women who'd left their jobs to raise their kids and couldn't get back into work and it had an enormous reaction because it was obviously so on the demographic but I had real trouble kind of getting those kinds of stories often into the papers through um, older male editors because they just weren't interested in those kind of women so there were kind of two things that came together which was this sense of well, here I am at 50, but I feel really pretty young and I can see all these women around me doing amazing things and yet their stories aren't being told in the mainstream. So I could see that that was a real opportunity. And then I started really looking into the demographics and the and the finances of these women. You know, they're behind, women aged 45 to 60 are behind 90% of all household spending decisions. They outspend millennials by 250%. And yet 
they're in less than two percent featured in less than two percent of advertising so i could also see that there was a really interesting business opportunity in really reflecting these women's lives kind of back in a new way and i became passionate about changing the narrative about the later stages about of women's lives because i could see that what was out there was just really not fit for purpose so that was the kind of genesis of noon mm. and this lovely older woman who um became my friend um she's an investor and i kind of talked to her about this and she said look if you want to set up something like that i'll back you and that was oh. the beginning of noon so we wow. you know we built it together that is amazing because the, i mean the people that you have involved i mean it's just i was looking at it yesterday and like you've got you know you've got uh, BAFTA and Emmy winners you've got you know former editor of Star magazine you've got the, the co-founder of Brit Mums you've got people women who have really done I mean that's Eve Pollard I mean I could just go on on you you were interviewing Minnie Driver the other day I mean it's it's like it's so you've attracted sort of so many different people who are sort of somebody listening yeah Cheryl to Cheryl Samba came and gave us a huge Did endorsement she... right at the beginning said that we could do for older women what she was trying to do for all women at Lean In no I've had some incredible endorsements but you know what that comes from that that's just that whole thing about what you put out in the world comes back to you these are all women who i had supported when i had the kind of you know the levers the power to do that i ran their stories in the magazine i was straight about how i dealt with them i um was interested in what they had to say i've always believed in trying to um, empower women and support other women and that meant that when i reached out to people saying will you be part of my noon advisory board i think everybody said yes mm. there's one person who who's had to say no because she is um she runs a charity so she can't be on other boards or see any conflict of interest but basically everybody was like yeah i totally agree with that and i'll and i'll help you and they've really kind of stuck with that and appeared on the platform or written for me or given me their advice and it it was it's a really strange thing when you um make a transition from one thing to another it takes quite a long time to realize what your true assets are or what your true strengths are mm. it's really funny because i talked to a lot of other people about it um you know and i was an editor and all that kind of thing but actually my real assets were this incredible network and this goodwill that i built up over so many years and the, all the people that i knew because i'd commissioned them to write things for so long um and also just th this amazing kind of network of um kind of friendship and kind of love and support and also a sense of people lots of other women of the same age really getting behind this vision and going yeah you're right it is crap out there for older women and nobody's talking about the intersectionality of where ageism meets sexism what we call gendered ageism um and that this is this is a real problem and for me it's the last bastion of feminism i think it matters incredibly that women look forward to their being 50 as being in their prime mm. and i want my daughters to look forward to being 50 as kind of when they move into their power and not that women are told that we're like peaches one wrinkle and that we're in the bin whereas men are meant to age like good wine and kind of you know get better and better i think the women that i see around me are absolutely incredible and i want people to know their stories and i want society to stop looking at us through a male lens whereby as soon as we're not attractive to men in terms of you know fecundity or mm -hmm. uh, or being pleasing in that way that we're, we're irrelevant we're not irrelevant we value we, we matter to ourselves we matter to our families and there's also a whole different way of thinking about legacy i think for women one of the statistics i'm very interested in when it comes to my women at noon is nearly a third of them don't have children and of those that third who don't have children a half of those have intentionally 
not had children. So then if you're thinking about legacy or how you um, extend your purpose in the world or what the later part of your life looks like, I mean, again, the male lens only sees women through a prism of women with children. If you're a woman who doesn't have children, then building a business or writing an amazing book or um, creating a charity or whatever, that, that, becomes, that becomes your legacy in a different kind of a way. And I don't think that society has caught up with that at all, whether that's thinking about investment or how women build businesses or why so many women are resigning from their jobs in their 50s to kind of do something for themselves. And what our noon research shows, we did a big piece of research called The Rise of the Queenager. I like Queenager rather than the kind of midlife woman. Um, but what, what Queenagers are all about is, um, uh, is, is that sense of kind of moving into your power and your legacy and that sense of it being this is our time that's how I feel about it you know our time is now and a lot of women have spent the last 25 years looking after everybody else and you know family and whatever gets in the way of a lot of the plans you have and it, I think there's a sense of 50 that slight drum roll which is like well if you don't do it now <laughs> when's it going to happen you know when are you going to do it and so I'm there at noon to kind of go, OK, you know, I know this feels scary, but we've got you. You can do this. And this is a supportive community which will be like holding your holding your hand and cheering you on while you do it. And we run retreats and events and things to help w women really move into that sense of their power. Because that's what I was going to ask you. So some, I know that people listening to this and I know sort of a, a lot of the women who are listening, a lot of my audience are women and they are so many are just having so many, you know, just that like, everything that you're explaining, either that they stopped everything for, for having children or like you say, they don't have children or they've managed to, to do a little bit of both, but still haven't reached the, what they deep down know that they're their potential. So if someone's listening to this and they think, right, OK, I like the sound of noon, you know, but what what? what what could you so if somebody is who's listened to this who's a bit unsure as to what to do next how would noon help them well i think the first thing that you can do is to sign up to our noon newsletter which is called the queen Asia, um which i write every week and um so we have a kind of that that goes out at the moment to about um uh, six and a half thousand women we have on our newsletter which is really fun um and then that allows you to get involved with all sorts of different things so we run something we run a noon book club every month where all the women come together and discuss um a particular book which has a kind of midlife theme often about transition and transformation and we also run for, for our paid subscribers so you can become a paid subscriber for six pounds a month we run something called a noon circle which is like a online version of the kinds of sharing circles that we do at the retreats where everyone where the women kind of bring their problems and we talk about them and then on the site there are um endless inspirational articles about how you get through what i call the midlife pinch points so whether that's you know divorce as we've got amazing stories about people kind of what what that really feels like how you move on or sexuality kind of in your 50s or um moving from one career to another you know how you might think about that we've got when we have incredible experts as well within our new community a lot of whom are on our advisory board so lisa unwin gives people lots of free career advice we do a whole series of um, courses on that kind of thing we've got an amazing expert called murray mcleod who talks about midlife dating that's really um, popular and how to rethink your strategy to dating um kind of in midlife um we run the kinds of stories you wouldn't see anywhere else so someone wrote a brilliant piece of me about going to a sex club after her divorce <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, and because I think I think women in midlife, you know, us queen edges, we deserve all the good stuff, all yeah. the you know, joy, fun, sex, laughs, kind of, you know, when we shouldn't be being ruled out of um, of anything. Absolutely. So um, I think I think all of that stuff's really important. And what we try and do at our retreats is really to bring all of that to life. And for you, I mean, presumably, so when you going back to that moment when you're on the on the bench with your friend, you're like, hang on, you'd been so attached with your Sunday Times and the job there. But presumably, you are using a lot of your skills. You're pretty much using because you you did essentially, I would imagine, had some business skills as well in your Sunday Times work. Yeah, with the well, because I was editorial director, I was also um, kind of quite across the commercials for the mm. paper, and very much setting, you know, work deciding what we would promote and. Um, what kind of direction the newspaper needed to go in? So no, that I, I don't think I could have set up noon without that. In fact, my the um, the lessons that I learned from the commercial department at News UK were absolutely invaluable. Yeah, because yeah. um, I was one who used to have to police things like branded content and whether it was stepping over the line and that kind of thing. So doing kind of partnerships and things that we do on noon has been um, that's all been really helpful. It's been really fun. I mean, it's been really fun. I think what you what you learn and a lot of your listeners will know this when you set up your own. Um, thing I mean what you re also realize is how useless you become as a kind of senior executive so I had like two executive assistants and you know if my computer broke or I couldn't do it I'd just be like oh someone come and you know sort out my computer when you're setting up your own company there there is no tech support you know my poor husband would get me running upstairs going oh, I can't make it work <laughs> you know my children I remember the first time I had to do an IGTV and I just had no idea what to what, how to do it and my um 16 year old going oh for god's sake mum you know this is how you go into IGTV you hit live it's really not very hard you know so all those kind of things you you become much more um I think you become much more self-reliant I, I was quite tech terrified because I always had other people who would sort it out for me but now I'm quite now I, I take quite a lot of pride in being able to sort out my own stream yard kind of um link into my LinkedIn live page which so I can do it myself or being able to kind of run quite a complicated zoom thing and you know be doing the questions while talking I kind of I, I think it's quite empowering to actually have to kind of plow your own ship and look at your own accounts and I, I, it's quite fun and the best thing about it is that nobody can tell you what to do or say no because if you go back to as well when you were saying about being on the on the night bus I'm obviously quite fascinated about you being on that night bus as a, as a teenager <laughs> but you know like you said there you learned how to manage everything and you know you learn your schooling and then being at home but then having your party days in a sense it makes now you're saying it as you are it makes perfect sense that somebody like you would be doing this on for yourself. But after all those years working for a big company, it's quite you can forget that, can't you? So for you now, when you do wake up in the morning and you're like, OK, here we go today. I mean, how does it feel? I love my life. I really um, I mean, I really love the, the, the what I really love about it after 25 years on a paper where the routine was exactly the same, that you knew at like 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning, you're going to be in a particular conference, same on Thursday, you know, you know, exactly on a newspaper, you know, the exact rhythm of the week, because everything has to happen to a certain schedule. And what I love about my life now is that every day is completely different. And if the sun's shining, I go up and swim in the pond, I don't have to ask anybody's permission. Mm -hmm. I just get in the car and nip up there for a bit. And then I come back and do whatever I'm doing later. I mean, the downside is, as my great friend, who's a, a surfer who travels all over the world used to say he used to say freedom has no sponsor um <laughs> you know and so you you haven't necessarily got your big pay paycheck coming in at the end of the week but what you discover is that as a consultant you can make quite good cash maybe not you know constantly but every so often you get a good wad of dosh mm -hmm. um and i'm i'm 
completely now a proselytizer for Substack. That has been a game changer um, for Noon because it's enabled us to, um, you know, ask our community to support us a bit. You don't have to, you can have the newsletter for free if you want to, but it's amazing how many um, of our audience have decided to make a small contribution to support what we're doing at noon. And I must say, having been editorial director of the Sunday Times, we've been like battling paywalls for so long that to um, to actually discover that people are really willing to pay um, has been a real revelation um, mm. to me. Um, I, I, and I think I think it's just kind of backing it's it's backing your it's backing yourself. And I also think that as we've all learned over the pandemic, there are lots of things which seemed very essential before. I mean, I used to spend a fortune on lunch every day. You know, you go to Pure or Itsy, you can spend like 15 quid on lunch every day without even thinking about it. Mm. And I'd be buying kind of coffees for other people. So just just the kind of burn rate of cash you got through just by going into the office and kind of being around kind of people or you know whatever all the time mm. I think you can live much more you can live much more cheaply and I really love the I'm really loving the freedom I spent six weeks in Jamaica over Christmas wow. longest time I've been away um since I'd started um you know a, a, a newspaper when I was like 23 25 so th that that sense of life opening out again mm. all days being different and being your own you know being able to say what you think about lots of things that that's not actually that easy it was quite interesting that i'd been such a spokesperson i've done so much media over the years kind of a sunday time spokesperson and then to be in those kinds of positions as yourselves really speaking from the heart about the things that you care about that's mm. that's a very different that's a very different proposition and i've done i've done a lot of work on myself, I, I bumped into somebody I hadn't seen for a while at the at the weekend, and I and I described it by saying, you know, I sh I've shed I've shed a lot of stuff, I've shed a lot of baggage, I've shed a lot of layers. Mm. It was, and I think that those kind of transitions, that kind of moving to your next chap chapter, is painful, sure, but I think it's also you feel so much better when you've got rid of it. And mm. I think by midlife, we're all carrying around mm. so much baggage that mm. it's actually really good to have a bit of a, you know, inventory and chuck it out. Um, that's out. really what we do on our retreats as well. We do a, a whole day, which is all about all the things you want to get rid of. Mm. And then at the end of the day, we burn it on the fire. Everyone writes down the list and burns it on the fire. Mm. I found that incredibly powerful yeah, for yeah. myself. And then it just feels, then it's like you've kind of got so much more, yeah, so much more room yeah. to do all the other things that you want. I mean, we're all carrying around loads of things that we should have kind of, you know, put to rest a long time ago. But I think... In the same way, if you've been in a marriage for 23 years, you've been in the same job for 23 years, you, you just kind of get used to, you, you just trog along in that reality. And then it's a bit like a death, you know, when something ends and there's a time before and there's a time after and you you have to kind of have a new reckoning. You you jettison out the stuff you don't need anymore and you, and you move on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think actually we all need to do that more in our lives. Um, and I think I was unusual that I'd been somewhere for such a long time. I mean, if I looked around at my friends, hardly anyone had been in the same job for, for that long. So it was probably well overdue that I kind of had a 
bit of a life prune. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you wouldn't have thought it on that day where you found out. But just look what it where it's brought you. It's amazing. Because um, I know you mentioned as well, and I'm conscious of your time, Eleanor. You've been so generous. Thank you. Um, but you mentioned Eckhart Tolle. I never can say his name right, but I'm I'm big <laughs> fa- a big fan. For, but it, it, that's for anyone listening. That is a that that is very important. That was isn't a it? that was a really seminal. I mean, what we haven't really touched on um, here that much, and I still feel slightly reluctant to, or resistant to talking about because it's so not in keeping with kind of how I was um I found Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now life-changing yeah. when when I first left the Sunday Times I had really bad Covid in the beginning of that pandemic when Boris was ill and was like in hospital and everyone thought he might die mm-hmm. it was a really scary time to be ill actually because mm-hmm. you, nobody really knew kind of what it meant and you were really terrified that if you suddenly got breathing problems you're going to end up on a ventilator and it was it was pretty nasty and I was pa- quite felt quite panicky and I started reading or listening to actually to Eckhart Tolle on um, an audio book. And I have to say that ever since that day, I have meditated every morning. Um, And I do that. And I'm part of a meditation group. Um, I went on a retreat and we all really stayed in touch. And every Monday morning we meet up and we kind of check in about how we really are. Um, And I've definitely been on a huge spiritual journey through all of this and I feel a real sense of um of a kind of quite powerful mission in what I'm trying to do around kind of women and changing things that comes from a really heartfelt place for Mm. me I really really I really believe it and I think it's a change that we really need to see in the world and I think that when you really start enacting your purpose kind of all the time that you feel very passionate about what you're doing and you really know that you're you know, you feel like you're you're right, you're onto something. And I know that feeling from having been a columnist or an editor in the past. I've run very, very successful campaigns which have changed things. Mm. And I know that's kind of sweet spot. And when you're kind of in it and your whole life becomes about pushing that change forward, kind of helping people, and you get this amazing feedback from the kind of women in the community saying that they, they've been helped by something that you've said or that you've done. I think that that's a really, that's an amazing place to be. Mm. And it's not it's not kind of regular or certain in the way that what I used to do was, but in some ways really leaning into the uncertainty, accepting that we don't really know anything, but what we do know is that we're guided by a real sense of a mission which feels right. That's a pretty exciting place to be, Mm. actually, and feeling that you don't need to have all the answers, but you're really, really loving the journey and what it's showing you and the people that it's bringing up and the effect that you can have on them as a kind of you know beacon for seeing something in a new way mm-hmm. that's been massively powerful and exciting and oh. i would urge everybody to join you know not necessarily on my quest but on their own version of yeah. whatever that is and i think really finding out what your purpose is and living it and kind of aligning everything towards it so that things feel quite holistic and kind of put together I mean, I've always talked about how my life was you know I was an editor and a writer I was a partier and a SWAT but I now feel that everything's come together and that is a good place to be do you feel liberated yeah I feel very free mm. I really do and I feel very um I feel I feel I feel I travel kind of quite lightly in the world mm. and that there's a lot of um kind of joy and love it still can be scary you know it's kind of quite exposing I wrote a my newsletter this week was about renegotiating relationships um in midlife and I wrote a bit about my my own 
partner and I was, it was really weird there's a sense I think when you're an, when you're an editor when you write anything I'm sure you have this because you've been a journalist that when you the moment where you kind of leave you basically hit send but there's a there's a kind of a gap isn't there between when you hit send and it's kind of gone as far as you're concerned but when it actually hits the world and in that in that gap is all the you know the anxiety the fear the all the things like all the oh my god you know is it going to have this reaction will people react in the wrong way does it sound too smug am i not taking into account all my audience who don't have partners you know just all the kind of negatives that can come at you yeah um and you know that's a but then but then when it lands and it's and it's and it works you know it's right and people kind of go oh that was really great that well that was really helpful that's what i really like is people going you know that landed i was just in the middle of having an argument with my husband and your thing landed about how often do you actually put your partner first yeah um and that just that sense of you know we're, all of us have endless to-do lists but how often is the person who originally we got together with because we love them so much they rocked our world how often is actually that person when once you've been together for 25 years actually really top of your list you know how often does that person who you say you cherish most actually end up with the most rubbish bit of you the knackered bit in the tracksuit bottoms on the sofa kind of feeling a bit grumpy just wanting another glass of wine and to pass out in front of netflix you know how how often do you give that person who's meant to be your most important person your best shiny self you know your monday morning got my head on got my makeup on kind of you know really kind of going out to suck it to the world how often do you really how often do they get that best bit of you yeah. i thought that was really interesting and that's mm. something that i've been trying to you know kind of trying to do more is mm. it, i suppose it's one of the readjustments of midlife is trying to really um align one's kind of time and energy behind the things that really matter to us rather than the things that we're we're told matter told. yeah absolutely i um i still can't look at my reports when they go out live on tv i have to i just yeah I, I mean it's only been 25 years and i still can't do it so i totally i totally understand i said i could talk to you all day eleanor i really could i'm going to just move on to the to our next sections just briefly so to be continued i'm guessing i i know you also you're writing a novel but to be continued what would you like to do next i'm guessing what you're going to say but what would you like to to do next well i'm trying to write a novel which i'm finding really difficult and it's i think a lot of journalists find this that when you're, you're used to writing um for money and to be published it's very weird to, sp to spend so many hours and write so many thousands of words that may you know never see the light of day and it's also one of those things that often kind of when you're in it it feels quite good then you go back and read it and you think it's utterly rubbish um and i don't know it's really it's really hard but it's a really good battle and then you read something like i've just finished reading um the great circle by um, maggie schitzer which is absolutely brilliant if you haven't read it i would highly recommend it but you read something which is that good and then you're just in a state of total depression that your thing is completely useless so i mean i would really really love to manifest that my novel um which is all about transformation and women in midlife um finally sees the light of day hope so it's certainly had enough hours put oh. into it Ellen, i um, can't tell you how comforting it is for me to hear you say that because if you feel like that i can understand but you know it, yeah but i'm sure it will i'm absolutely sure it will well but you know everyone thinks uh, tolstoy apparently wanted to burn war and peace after he'd finished it exactly. so I, mean, I think everyone has that sense of you know is this you, you kind of can see all its flaws in the in the kind of moment of you know writing it and i think it's really hard if you're a writer and an editor it's really hard to kind of switch off the editor enough to actually get some stuff down on the page mm. and then but then i often come back to back at it and i just feel so vicious towards it that 
anyway so it's, 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 it's a process mm-hmm. um and but i also really hope that noon kind of you know continues to to flourish and that you know it, it that we bring that noon mission you know to, to to fruition so that our daughters look forward to being 50 as coming into their prime that we change this narrative about a woman being done as soon as she becomes wrinkly and unattractive to men which is basically what we're landed with at the moment and it's so pernicious all over the place and it's also what Minnie Driver talked about I think really really interestingly was how much we've internalized that narrative ourselves as women I thought she was really interesting on that and kind of unpicking that Mm. um and I think that that's true so there's a lot of internalized misogyny that we the way we judge other women the way that we judge ourselves the way that we think about ourselves which also has to be kind of reprogrammed and sorted out if we're going to change the matrix through which women kind of Mm. see and judge are judged and judge themselves When you go back to when you were the trainee on the Observer and like, you know, the only girl uh, trainee and you sort of go back to then and you think of now today, do you think it has got better? Um, I think it got better in some ways, but when I look at my daughters and the world that they inhabit, um, I remember something a wise old feminist once said to me, which is that misogyny doesn't disappear, it mutates. Mm. And I think that what's happened for the teen generation, and this is like a whole other um, hobby horse of mine, as I'm sure you know, is about internet pornography mm. and about what um, our young people are really being told at a very kind of intimate level about what sexuality is, what it looks like what they do to you know what they do to each other i do a lot of going into schools and talking to 16 and 17 year olds about kind of what sex is what how sex is something that you do with some someone not to someone that it's meant to be a kind of you know loving mutually pleasurable act and i think that so many of our young people have been bred on or think sex is this horrible, violent, misogynistic mm. pornography that is often the first way that they encounter sexuality. Mm. Um, and the really scary thing about that is that um, a lot of young people get their dial kind of set to extreme before they've even ever had any real life sexual experience. And so I think what's really worrying about that is that we say to our daughters, you know, you're equal, you can do anything, um, you're not being judged by your look, but looks, but all that they hear in their own popular culture is um, kind of hotness, a kind of porn aesthetic, um, and that that is how they will be judged. And I think that that's absolutely terrifying. And that, you know, my daughter's at Oxford, and that's as alive and kicking there as it is anywhere. And that these girls still feel that they're being judged on, you know, kind of hotness is all and also the expectations of the boys in terms of um, kind of sex and what that looks like have been set to such a kind of extreme things that we would never have um, put up with or um, experienced when we were younger. So Mm. I did a a survey of young women of like 18, 19, how many of them have been choked by um, kind of boyfriends. You know, just when they're having a snog at a party, they think it's as normal for a boy to try and choke them as we would have thought oh, for a boy to put their hand on a, on our arse or mm. something. You know, it's not and I'm really not a Mary Whitehouse. I was I was no nun. Mm. Um but this is about this is about a kind of expectations of a kind of violence towards women mm. in their intimate relationships, which I think is really worrying and, and much darker than what we encountered at that age, even though then there were all sorts of dinosaur misogynistic 
kind of you know attitudes which are out in the world but i think what's dangerous now is that there's a there's a kind of top line narrative of women have equality and um women can do anything that men do and underneath there's this there's this other narrative which massively undercuts it which is a whole generation of boys bred on a notion of um internet pornography and that basically women are there to be kind of abused you know that that's what they think sexuality is about so i think it's very important that we talk to our children about this but i also think that it's important to recognize that very strong trope within our, within our society we see it with the kind of online trolls who come for women when they speak up um the kind of or if you read laura bates's brilliant new book about don't fix the women fix the system just that kind of sense of a, of a kind of a real backlash against women kind of pushing forward to equality which comes with you know oh you know i'll i'll rape you you bitch basically when you when you put your head above the parapet and i've had that myself but kind of i do quite a lot of tv and i'm pretty careful not to read my twitter feed when i come off because it'll be so misogynistic and derogatory so so i think it's it's, it's really important not to not to believe the hype too much but to really look at what's going on in the kind of undercurrents um of the way w the backlash against women's liberation and equality so i'd love to say yes things are better we've got you know five or six female editors of newspapers da, 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 da. but i also think that there's a big problem around often the kinds of women who are put in those positions of power mm. which is you know you might have a woman running the met but if she's not actually getting to grips with them digging out misogyny in this terrible boys culture then what the hell is the point point? and a lot of the women who do get into positions of power within those very male organizations are not the women who are going to challenge it mm. if they were going to challenge it they wouldn't have that job yeah yeah it's a whole different thing oh god i could talk to you for ages but yeah we could, i mean we could I mean, you know that's that's we'll that's something back, i feel Eleanor. really passionately yeah. about yeah it um, is it is it's frightening it is frightening so how old are your daughters now eleanor they are 19 and 17 right okay so it's nearly 20 nearly 20 and um one's a one's at oxford just finishing her first year the other one's at um doing her a levels okay so i'm very in You're the kind really of swim yeah. that teen girl culture and i i'm afraid i'm super embarrassing mum i ask them all sorts of questions when they come around yeah. actually they yeah. all really want to talk about it because yeah. nobody's actually giving them any tools to discuss this and when i i was asking them all about the choking thing they were amazed that, that they didn't know that it's that it's not normal yeah. well, it's like lobsters they? being boiled in a pot yeah. you know they don't know that what they're experiencing yeah actually 20 years ago wasn't a thing nobody ever tried to choke me no no again or you you know no no no, no never never no the but again it sort of goes back so it's helpful for you with your kind of like you said said at the beginning you know you know what your daughters get up to because you you kind of went through it but again if if somebody a mother hadn't been through it quite so much or perhaps led a different and it's very hard to if to not have that really if they don't have that relationship with their daughters you know it's can they where are they going to get it from you know where are they going to so it's brilliant that you're but i think it's i think it's incumbent I, I had a big fight with somebody actually i went to a debate at a law firm last week about kind of marriage and about relationships and uh, we got onto pornography because i think it's really important to talk about what the kind of norms are what the zeitgeist is saying about you know sexuality you can't talk about relationships in a vacuum and they were going oh well it's all up to schools to about civil about sex education in schools and it's not about sex education in schools it's about us as parents or as grown-ups modeling what loving sexual relationships look like and mean 
And however embarrassing it is to have those conversations with our teenagers, they need to hear it because nobody else is going to tell them that. And also, you know, we're their parents, so we should say that. And I suppose if you find that really difficult, maybe you've got a slightly, you know, more outspoken friend or, you know, my... Um, I've got these I've got siblings who are like kind of 14 years younger than me so they're almost like in a middle generation and I know that some of my my older daughter used to speak to kind of you know one of my brothers because he kind of felt a bit closer to her in age about some kinds of things mm. so I think you know if you really feel like you can't do it yourself then maybe there's somebody you can trust who you can direct your child to but I also think as parents we have to and as adults in this world we have to model what we would like you know and Balmer always said you need to be the change that we want to see in the world and I really believe that as we get older and if you want your children to understand what loving sexuality looks like talk to them about it mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely Ellen your acknowledgements who would you like to thank who has helped you along the way uh my husband <laughs> he sounds uh, my brilliant. husband Derek without Desert, there would be um you know none of this would happen and he's juggling um, thank goodness he's juggling juggled. exactly um my lovely daughters love them so much um they've been a great they've been so kind to me actually in the last two years so you know you're in a bad way when your teenage daughters are really sympathetic <laughs> um and my, and my amazing kind of amazing friends and all the kind of people on the noon advisory board who supported me and um claire gillis who's my um investor and co-founder at noon who's been an absolute rock they've been I, th I tell you what when you when you hit a rough patch in your life you realise who's really there for you. And it's not necessarily who you think, no. never who you think. No. And I think the other thing is that you, um, some of the people that you do think are going to be there for you are not, and you also realise something about some of the natures of your of your friendships. So um, massively grateful to everyone who's reached out a hand or has said yes when I've asked them for something over the last two years. And to all our amazing noon community and the support and you know love they they bring back. Mm, I think it's just incredible, and also just to show your your resilience. Not everyone would have reacted in the way you have, Eleanor. So to 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 create something that is helping so many people in the same to sort of I suppose it's having that empathy that you knew what was needed and being honest about what was needed I don't think quite everyone would do that so I think it's really incredible what you're doing so thank you oh thank you no, I mean it, it. It, it hasn't it hasn't been easy yeah. <laughs> it's felt quite scary and quite exposing um at various points but I think well, I think what I've really learned, and actually my friend on the bench, you know, talk about this moment where we were sitting on the bench yeah, drinking the pins at like midday on a midday yeah. on a Monday in Love lockdown. It. Love it. Her going, how are you? Me weeping. Um, and, but actually she said it to me, she said it to me really on, she's always said to me, um, Eleanor, one of your real strengths is your capacity to be, to be vulnerable, to be open, to show that things you know, to, to, to be able to to also show show weakness. And, uh, and I really, uh, Brené Brown talks about this a lot, about the kind of power of vulnerability. But I think when you really live it in your life, when you really go there publicly on stuff that other people find massively shameful, and it was very hard to write about being, um, you know, whacked from the Sunday Times and stuff. But it was also one of the most powerful things that I've ever done because, of course, everybody feels like that. I mean, I've got I've got a great friend who wrote about um, her husband dying and um, 
and she said she said the thing about sharing that kind of emotional honesty stuff is that when you do it you feel like you're running out in this in down the street with no clothes on but when you do it you realize that actually every nobody's got any clothes on and mm. they're all there with you and mm. that was a really kind of wise piece of advice too that it feels really scary when you go over the top but actually everybody's vulnerable everybody hurts and i think when you're quite a strong successful person and you can admit to that kind of vulnerability then that's really also very powerful in other people being able to share their own vulnerability mm. and that's where humanity improves and do you think as well because it, you don't strike me at all in any sense that i don't sense any anger or i'm, I'm sure you had moments all sort of bitter and resentful all these horrible horrible negative emotions that you could just carry around and like you say you sort of shed it and you sort of feel lighter but do you think part of that by being so open and honest has helped you sort of release any some of that yeah definitely I think I don't know if I felt really I was probably pretty angry to begin with I don't know I felt I just felt really sad I felt very sad mm. I felt very kind of um um kind of exposed and and kind of quite humiliated and but also I think it made me really reassess it really made me really reassess the kind of nature of success you know and who I was doing it for anyway you know what was that kind of massive drive where was you know, kind of what was it for and and so I think when when I talk about really stripping back yourself to your own like true purpose I think that there's there's something to be said for that kind of moment that moment where the the floor disappears underneath you and everything that you had known is now no longer there mm. is terrifying but it's also a huge moment of opportunity and of kind of you know renaissance and regrowth and re uh, rebirthing and it sounds a bit hippie but i think it's really true that you that you, that you kind of go through a kind of portal and there there's a capacity then to change to become something else to transform to move into a new space and i think we forget about that in life too often and actually i'm a great fan of people who 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 do kind of you know move on who metamorphose who who shift and there's a wonderful book called the hundred year life um, by linda gratton and that that says that if we're all going to live for that long actually the ability to transition to really know yourself to slough off the stuff that's gone before to be able to really think about where you want to go and to have a kind of quite sure comp compass about your own purpose and why you're doing the things you're doing and what you really want to do just just all of us need occasionally to kind of go through that process mm. um and you don't do it when you're kind of on the hamster wheel of kind of you know running around and doing whatever it is that you do but when you get kind of spat out of something then you do have that opportunity to to really change and to you know mm. slough bits off yourself and shed things and become somebody different and i really urge people to do that because i think it's 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 um it's in a way the most fun you can have mm. it's not it's not always um you know laugh out loud fun it's really painful as well it comes with a lot of tears and but but kind of good tears mm. kind of tears of recognition and shedding and renewal mm. well we're moving the final section now the tips and advice i'm going to ask you one just a very practical because we touched on it earlier i know a lot of people and i include myself in this one of the one of the big fears is if you work for sort of big companies and obviously you get a, a regular salary. So like what you were talking there about sort of how things do change. But to, if you've got like a fear of even asking for money, like there you you, you know you you asked for subscribers, you know, and you can earn some money that way. How do people get over that kind of fear to just you know hang on, I've got this service, but I'm 
going to ask someone to pay me for it's it? It's really, it's a really good question. And, um, and the truth is I was really rubbish at it. Okay. Um, yeah, I was good really rubbish know. at That's it. And it's know. actually, I've, I've only been on Substack for about a month. She probably less than that. Um, but I had several quite powerful women. I'm doing a book with an amazing woman called Sarah Pittendry. I'm, I'm kind of ghosting some of her memoir for her. Um, and she's a really successful entrepreneur. And I went and spent two days with her up in Northumberland and she told me her life story, which is amazing. Um, and but she gave me quite a hard time over dinner. She was going, why aren't you monetizing this community? You know, and I was going, oh, well, you know, I don't know if I'll pay. And, and, and. she's like, she's like, these are self-limiting beliefs. You know? yeah, <laughs> you've, yeah, got yeah. To, you've got to get out there and ask us some money. And then there's another lovely woman called Nicola Walter, who's a, um, a kind of on, online kind of uh, business kind of coach. She used to be very, very senior at Massive Merchant Bank. And uh, and she said the same thing to me. She was like, why are you being, you know, why are you being so pathetic about trying to monetize this, basically? And I, I sent her an email just a couple of days ago saying I stopped being a wuss and, you know, you started for asking it. for a bit of money. But she and she said, oh, I'm ne I would never call you a wuss. But there was something very um, and I think it's quite a female thing, too, that it's quite hard to really value yourself. You know, mm -hmm. even me and I'm pretty. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think self-esteem is something that I really suffer with and I'm pretty confident, but it was still it felt very hard to actually go, OK, pay me six pounds a month. Mm. Um, but I tell you what, every single time someone becomes a paid subscriber and it drops into my inbox, inbox going Substack paid subscriber, I, I feel you know, Amazing. I feel like I won the lottery. Yeah, I bet Bloody you do. Brilliant. And to anyone listening who doesn't know what Substack is, that's your subscription service, isn't it? Yeah, so Substack's massive in America, not so big here, and it basically allows writers, journalists, you know, anyone really, you can do podcasts on it too, to um, create an audience and, and monetize the content. So you have my newsletter goes out to only six and a half thousand people, and I say, you know, you can you can get this for free, or if you really want to support what we're doing and you become a free member of our book club, you pay six pounds a month or fifty pounds a year. And that money will go to support Noon and support, you know, what we're doing and all the support we're trying to give to to other women and so you can get the newsletter. Um, and it really works. I mean, you know, I'm amazed, but people really will pay. So mm. that's, I think that's brilliant. And there are lots of journalists in, you know, in America, Andrew Sullivan's making about two million a year out of this yeah. and um, other journalists in the UK are doing are doing pretty well. So in a way, it's a kind of unbundling of newspapers. Mm. It's like taking rather than kind of buying a whole newspaper you're kind of basically paying a bit of money for the columnist that you really like mm -hmm. but then you're getting it's something very tailored for you that you don't have to go through skip all the pages that you wouldn't normally um so it's just yeah. just yeah, clever, it's clever. yeah it's so clever so Ellen you've I say you've been so generous with your time your final bit of advice okay so if someone's listening to this and they are feeling all oh, this is it I've listened to Eleanor I am I'm revved up but I still don't have any idea what I want to do but I know I have to do something else this is not working for me um what would you say to that person um i would say probably where you need to start is by doing a bit of work on yourself and to kind of um work out your purpose and what what it is you would really like to do um you know i would say you know come on a come on a noon retreat you know if that's if that's a bit expensive um try and I, th I would say, you know, start in the physical, Re read a bit of Eckhart Tolle, go for, you know, get yourself out into nature. I'm a great believer in wild swimming. I get in the water all the time. I think starting to make yourself feel kind of physically better and more robust is the first bit. And then start asking yourself 
some big questions you know what would i do i love the, the cheryl sandberg one what would i do if i wasn't afraid um you know if you could do anything kind of what would that look like i I've, i'm also a great believer in kind of writing down i did this I, I, i've kind of you know what what do you actually what do you really enjoy doing um just asking yourself some of those big questions what do you actually like what when was the last time you felt really happy and kind of you know in in flow like the universe had your back and everything was kind of aligned and you felt like everything in your life was great and it kind of and go back and unpick out find those moments and then work out what the connecting threads are and then try and do more of that i mean it's i think it's really that simple mm. eleanor mills i mean what a conversation from soho night buses to juggling to gorbachev i mean i had no idea quite where this conversation was going to go but it's just been amazing you're amazing thank you so much for giving me your time and sharing your story with me Oh, well, thanks very much. And I hope it's helpful to, to uh, you know, someone who listens in. And if you're interested in what we're doing at noon, it's www.noon, as in the middle of the day, .org.uk. And if you're interested in the sound of the Queen Ager newsletter, <laughs> you can um, find me on eleanormills.substack.com. I think you're a brilliant Queen Ager. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. I mean, I'm going to say it again. Wow. I learned so much from this conversation and I just love this. Midlife is a time to be excited, ready for our next chapters. Yes, and change can be hard. It really can be. This is what we're here for. Eleanor, me and all my next chapter guests. We really are in this together. No matter how you may feel, we really are. And when you think about it, well, how exciting is all of this? Now, the link to Noon is in the show notes. I really, really recommend you have a look. You can keep up to date with me and my next chapter at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you could rate and review this episode, well, that would be wonderful. And it may even help someone discover their next chapter. You're listening to the next chapter by Ellie Barker, a flower pot production. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, keep thinking, keep pondering. What do you love to do? I believe you can do it. And Eleanor does too. Speak soon.